0: Ezra is a historical book, so we've been covering the history of of Israel, and when we last left the nation of Israel, we saw that a group of people, this is the end of chapter 6, a group of people had returned from exile and over a period of 20 years rebuilt the temple. It only took them about four years to build it, but remember they had a 16-year break in the work. They had been taken out of Israel, taken as slaves by Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, The temple they built is referred to as the second temple. That is the temple that is going to be beautified in the New Testament by Herod. The first temple was built by King Solomon. It was beautifully ordained and covered with gold. It was a testament to the nation of God's blessing, God's presence, God's prosperity upon them. That first temple of Solomon lasted about 375 years. So Solomon's reign and the reign of all the kings that came after him. It was demolished under the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. And that was, we know, part of God's judgment because Israel had repeatedly turned away from God. Israel spent 70 years in shame and sorrow. But at the end of chapter 6 of Ezra, the temple has been restored. God's faithful hand was upon them, that first group of exiles, Remember, over 40,000 people came back. They were successful. And you might also remember that took place under the leadership of two men named Zerubbabel and Jeshua. This morning, we come to chapter 7 of Ezra, and we're now going to read some historical records of a second group that returned out of exile. This group was led by a man named Ezra. So if you've been with us for now wondering why is the book called Ezra, we haven't even know who that is, you finally have an answer. Ezra is likely the man who compiled the records from the first group and now took his own record or a diary, if you will, of his work during the second return. The second group of Israelites that came back to Jerusalem after they were exiled came back 60 years after the temple was completed. So I just want you to have that in mind. From the end of chapter 6 to the first verse of chapter 7, 60 years have transpired. One biblical record we have of that time is the entire book of Esther. Esther takes place during that gap, but that tells you a story about what's happening in Persia. This is telling us what's happening in Jerusalem. In those 60 years, King Cyrus, who made the initial proclamation that the Israelites could go back, he has died. His son, uh, Cambyses, came to power. He has died. And then we had King Darius, and then we had King Xerxes, and now we have King Artaxerxes in the Persian Empire. He is the king mentioned in the opening verse, which I read. This is all taking place in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Again, 60 years have passed. That's a long time. What was it 60 years ago? We are in 2024. 60 years ago it was 1964. Has anything changed since then? I was not alive in 1964. Many of you weren't either, but from the historical records I could dig up, it seems things have changed. Um, Technologically, we have things today that people had no idea about In the early 60s, people at that time had never heard of things like bubble wrap or artificial sweeteners like aspartame or equal. They didn't even have cassette tapes in 1962, 63. They didn't have CDs. They didn't have DVDs. Maybe wouldn't even have imagined modern cell phones with the idea to stream video and music at your leisure. But the most significant shift that can take place between any generation is not the advancements in technology, the most significant shift is a change in the actual culture and priorities of a people that's much more worthy, that's that's much more um, noteworthy and meaningful. Technologically, I don't think much changed from the time the second temple was completed to the time Ezra came with the second group 60 years later But how had the people of Israel changed? Chapter six ends with them celebrating, we're gonna worship God, we have a temple, we're gonna obey his commands. How did that resolve turn out? Did they remain faithful to God? If you know anything about biblical history or about human nature, you know that Old Testament Israel seems incapable of remaining faithful. Sixty years have passed, and the people have forgotten. They forgot about their God. They forgot about their history. They forgot about the law they were supposed to be following. Israel at that time went back to looking like the nations around them. They, they, they begin to be influenced by the people around them. The instructions God had given them had been abandoned. That kind of rejection we've seen many times in Israel's history deserves judgment, But in the blessing and the faithfulness of God, he raises up a man named Ezra. Ezra is going to be sent with a smaller group of people, and he will lead the people, at least his intent is to reform the people, to lead them back to holiness and to obedience. And in doing that, the hope is that would also restore the blessing of God. We should know that every family, every church, every generation faces this risk of drifting away from righteousness, drifting away from the law of God. How do we prepare for that? Wouldn't you like to guard your family and your church against that danger? Wouldn't you like to be used by God to bring either restoration from the past or protection for the future? How does that happen? How does God bring restoration and protection to his people? How, is, how does God work to bring that about? The ministry of Ezra gives us two important answers to that question, and I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we'll see how they're fleshed out in this chapter. This chapter is, it, 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 you're going to have the trip. There are references to the trip, but this is basically an introduction to his ministry, the two qualities we're going to see this morning are, number one, Ezra's diligence with the word of God, and number two, his dependence on the work of God. So diligence with the word of God is the first quality, and dependence on the work of God is the second quality. I think that's a helpful summary of Ezra's life and ministry, diligence with the word of God and dependence the on the work of God. Ezra comes to the scene with some very high credentials. I already read to you the opening verses. The first five verses tells us of his lineage. He's a true priest. He's in the line going all the way back to the beginning of the the high priests, and that is Aaron, the brother of Moses. He also comes in the line of Phinehas, who was a man who, with a spear, meted out God's judgment, stopping a plague that God had sent on the people. He's also in the line of a man named Zadok, who was high priest under King David. All this is just pointing the Israelites to the fact that this is a noble lineage. This is a a good man. And then looking up again, look one more time, verse 6. It says, this Ezra, the man with this legacy, this man, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. And then it says, he was a scribe. Skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king, that is Artaxerxes, granted him, Ezra, all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. In that one verse, you see both elements of Ezra's ministry. You see his diligence with the word of God and you see his dependence on the work of God. There there are phrases we'll see in these chapters you can highlight or underline if you want that emphasize those truths. First of all, verse six says he was a scribe and he was skilled in the law of Moses. That is the the word of God. Some translations say he was an expert in the law. The, The word for skill there points to readiness. He knows what he's doing. If someone is skilled, let's say, with a weapon, they know how to use it immediately. You're skilled in a task. You're skilled in in your craft. You know how to do it. You know how to do it well. You don't have to go back to, to the manual. As a priest, he would have been elevated in the eyes of the people. He would have had responsibilities to lead, to teach. But he went beyond that. He was not just a priest. He was a scribe. That means he didn't just work using the Mosaic law. He understood it and he interpreted it for his generation. The, the law of Moses was a, came a 1,000 years before this. Just as an example, think of the difference between an average citizen who knows the law. We generally knows the law, know the law of the land. But compare that with a lawyer or a judge whose job it is to know and to interpret and to understand the law. That was Ezra's relationship with the law of God. He knew the law that Israel was expected to follow. He studied it diligently. There are some traditions, we can't, mean, we can't know for sure if this is true, but there are some traditions that claim that Ezra had the entire law of Moses memorized and he could write it for himself. Ezra's heart for the word of God didn't just lead him to be diligent, it led him to be concerned about its implementation. He cared about the glory of God. He cared about things being done God's way. And so as far as we can tell, it seems that he got news that things weren't going well in Jerusalem. And so he asked the king for permission to go. I want to go back to my homeland and I want to teach them the word of God. I want to change the people And the king approves his request. That's the end of verse six. It says, the king granted him all that he asked for. I'm sure Ezra was grateful. But the final credit for Ezra's return doesn't go to the kindness of King Artaxerxes. What's the reason he gives for the king's favor? It says, the king gave him all that he asked for because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. There's the second element of Ezra's ministry. He was dependent on the work of God. If Ezra wasn't depending on God's blessing and God's power on his behalf, he wouldn't have given God the credit. He would have said, well, of course the king was nice to me. I'm a, I'm a smart guy. He depended on the power of God. He knew it was God that had worked in the heart of the king. We've already referenced this passage before. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he he will. Along the same lines, Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We we need God to be working with us and for us, otherwise, this is meaningless. Ezra understood the reality of the sovereignty of God. He knew that God had to be working in order for his people to be successful. Ezra knew that it is the word of God that defines success for his people and it is the powerful work of God that makes success possible. So diligent in God's word and dependent on God's work, Ezra is going to go back to Jerusalem with a new group of people. The first 14 verses of chapter 8 give us the names and the numbers. It's about 1,500 men But here in chapter 7, verse 7, we see the kinds of roles the people had. Chapter 7, verse 7, it says, There went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. These are people who, by their lineage, had been assigned roles in the temple. Verse 8, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For those of you who prefer to know, the seventh year of Artaxerxes is sometime around 458 B.C., the journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem would have been around 900 miles. That's a distance from here to Cabo San Lucas at the bottom of Baja California. If you take a plane from LAX to Baja California, to Cabo San Lucas, it's two and a half hours. But here is Ezra with a caravan of people. It takes them four months. So it says the first day of the first month and the first day of the fifth month. So a four-month journey. And again, notice verse 9, the comment he has At the end of his journey, he says all this took place because the good hand of his God was on him. Again, it's another recognition of his dependency on God. He doesn't complain about the journey. He gives God the glory. He recognizes that surviving the journey is evidence of God's blessing on him. And who of us wouldn't want to be able to say the same thing about our own Lives. wouldn't it be wonderful to know that the people around you characterized you like this that the good hand of your God is on you what made Ezra so special we don't have to speculate the first word in verse 10 is for or your translation might say because this is the reason God's hand was upon him verse 10 For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I think if you underline anything in our passage today, this has to be it. This is his diligence. Ezra is diligent with the word of God. That's that's the emphasis and there are four verbs here that show us how his diligence works itself out. The first verb there is set. He set his heart. In other words, for Ezra, God's word was not a hobby. It was a passionate pursuit. His entire life was centered around the word of God. He set his heart. There was a commitment to it, whether he felt like it or not. The second verb we see there is study. He studied the word of God. Ezra's devotion to the word of God was not simply a sentimental one, it was intellectual as well. The Hebrew word here for study means to seek. And that's how it's translated many times when it's used in the Psalms, where it says we need to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek after God. Seeking God is not a magical, mystical thing. You know, you close your eyes and you imagine yourself on a cloud, and I'm going to go find God. That's not the biblical picture. You seek God primarily through his word. This is his revelation to us. It's not just him telling us truth. It's him revealing himself to us. If you want to know God, you have to know his word. Some people say, well, we can also seek God through prayer. And that's true. The Bible, the psalm, that's the other way to seek God. But the very best prayers are those that are fueled by and guided by Scripture. The same is true for the songs we sing. We're singing worship. Ancient of Days. Anyone know where that's from? That's Daniel. That's the vision he had of the kingdoms, including the Persian kingdom and the Greeks and the Romans. But an eternal kingdom will come, and an Ancient of Days rules over every kingdom. Also, if you're praying to God, seeking his wisdom, seeking some direction, his response will come to you not through some magical zap of truth that's extra scriptural. His wisdom will come to you in the unfolding of his truth. If you're asking God for wisdom and direction, but you aren't giving yourself to study his word, you've cut yourself off from the answer to your prayer. But if we search the scriptures will know God more and more. Sometimes you search scripture and the result is more questions, and that's a good thing. It means you're paying attention. And in seeking answers to your questions, you begin to understand God more. And and the questions that don't have answers lead us to praise God for the mystery of who he is. He's, He's more than we can know. That was Ezra's mindset. He set his heart to study he was a theologian, but not just one detached and, and theoretical. His study led to a third action. Ezra, studied, he set his heart to study the law of God. And the third action there, it says, and he was, set his heart to do it. He put it into practice. He was a scribe, but he was not a New Testament Pharisee. Remember, Jesus said, these guys, they know all the laws. They know all the rules. Do what they tell you. Don't do what they do. He said, he, Jesus told the Pharisees, you guys won't even lift a finger to, to, to help someone in the law of God. You know so much, but you don't do it. Jesus even said to the Pharisees more than once, haven't you read, don't you? They read, They had the answer is yes, they read it, but they didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear. They didn't put it into practice. Once the word of God has made an impact in Ezra's life, once his life can serve as a model to others, He dedicates himself to teaching it. That's the fourth one. He puts it into practice, he obeys it, and then lastly, he teaches it. If you notice the end of the verse, it says he dedicated himself to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. That could simply mean that he taught the Israelites, but I think it points to his desire to leave Babylonia, at least for a time, and to teach those who had returned to Israel Ezra is a man on a mission with the word of God he's depending on the power and the blessing of God and mercifully God's hand is upon him but that blessing came because his entire life was dedicated to the word of God I don't think the principle for us today is, is, is difficult to understand. It should be pretty obvious. The hard part is putting it into practice. Do you want God to use you? Do you want God to bless you? Do you want God's hand to be upon you for his purposes? Do you want God to use you to bless your family and your church and the people around you? How do we do that? We set our mind to study to obey and to teach the word of God. We are to be diligent in that and then we depend on God for the results. This is an important lesson for all of us. How much more important for those of us who have been called to leadership as husbands, to wash our wives with the word of God, as fathers to to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as leaders in the church who've been given that task, the word of God, uh, uh, Peter says, is the seed that gave us life. Faith comes by hearing. So the word of God saves us, but it's not, it doesn't end there. The word of God shapes us. It's, it's what we feed on spiritually. Hebrews says it's milk. It's It's meat. Our devotion to this word cannot be a simple sentimentality. You know, this is like, you know, it's like a Hallmark card from God. Some people, I don't know if anyone's ever said that, but they treat it like that. You know, I got the good book on the shelf, and sometimes I go, I go find a nice Christian fortune cookie. That's not what this is. This is our entire worldview. This, from the very beginning in Genesis, tells us how we got here, why we're here, from the end, where it's going, how we can be part of that. And the middle is us in sin, unworthy of the God who created us. And how does that get fixed? By the truths we sang this morning, by Christ on the cross. That's the message. We give ourselves to Christ. We repent of sin. We trust in him and his sacrifice. We trust in his resurrection. And now we give our lives to obey him, to serve him. We live as citizens of heaven, calling other people to be citizens of heaven, working through the pain of this life, knowing that heaven will come one day. And in that, we're blessed. As an example of God's blessing on Ezra's life, he documents a letter that was given to him by the king. We're not going to study it, but I'm going to read it starting in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Again, there's his devotion to the word of God. That's, if you go, who is Ezra? He's a teacher. He knows the truth. He's learned. It's very clear what kind of man he is. Here's the letter. I'm going to read all the way to verse 26, starting in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings. That was his title because he had conquered other nations, and now he's the emperor over all these kings. He is king of kings, Artaxerxes, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now, the king says, I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem. Go find out according to the law of your God which is in your hand. Verse 15 He's also authorized to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 17, with this money then you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. And you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it. Out of the king's treasury, verse twenty-one. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. That's where Jerusalem is, the other side of the Euphrates River. Here's the the decree: Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of Heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Verse twenty-two. Up to one hundred talents of silver. A talent is, I think, over seventy pounds. 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons." We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, verse 25, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, And those who do not know them, you shall teach. And lastly, verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Here is our Xerxes, the king of Persia, which by the way, modern day is Iran. So imagine the king or the president or prime minister of Iran deciding to fully fund a Jewish man to go to Israel and rebuild the temple. The king says to Ezra, you're a wise man. You know the law of God. You go and you do what God has placed in your heart to do. Make sure the people obey their God. Make sure your God is worshiped the way he's asked to be worshiped. And by the way, he says, I'll pay for it. And anyone who works at the temple, they don't pay taxes. And I'll send you a police force to make sure you're enforcing the law of your God. All because the king knew Ezra was a man of righteousness, integrity, and wisdom. The king's recognition of Ezra reminds me of Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-nine. 29, It says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. This was God's blessing on Ezra. He was skilled in his craft as a teacher of the law, and God rewarded him. As we read that letter, did any of that sound familiar to you? You get money, you get, a, you get a police force, you don't gotta pay taxes, our money will be here to help you. He, he gave him enough, enough uh, wine and oil and wheat to, 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 to make to people estimate that's about two years worth of sacrifices. If you've been with us in earlier sermons in Ezra, hopefully it stood out. It's very similar to the types of decrees that came from Cyrus and then from Darius. It's a continuing demonstration of God's blessing on his people, and especially through the leaders he has raised up. The king, Artaxerxes, he's not a believer. In his mind, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, is just one God of many, but he sees Ezra's righteousness, he sees Ezra's wisdom, he sees the blessing of God, similar to the story of Joseph, he sees the blessing of God on him. He says, you go do that because I want that blessing for myself and for my family. I don't want God's wrath on me. You go make sure that God is happy. The good hand of God is on Ezra and so the king says to him, Ezra, you go and you teach. And as the chapter comes to a close, we find Ezra's response concerning the letter from the king. And it again, is an expression of his dependence. He gives God the glory. Look at verses 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. This is Ezra speaking. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He understands, God's blessing me, but it doesn't lead him to be arrogant. It leads him to be grateful. It leads him to worship He recognizes that the kindness and the blessing of God is not something he deserves. That humility came from studying the word of God. If you study God's word, if you learn theology, if you learn biblical history, and then you think, well, I deserve God's blessing, I'm a a good person, you're doing something wrong. You and I are supposed to be humbled by the word of God, not made more boastful. This is what Paul told the Corinthians. We want knowledge, but not a knowledge that puffs up. We want the knowledge of God and in knowing God, we're humbled before him and we're uh, uh, brought into his image. When you know God, you begin to look more like him in his heart, in his character, in his love. We're gonna have the rest of the book of Ezra to see what kind of change, what kind of impact he makes in his own generation. But here at the start, we know he has the right heart. And he has the right tool for the job. That's the word of God. He comes with the law of God and he comes with the blessing of God. Again, every generation will face the danger of straying from God. But the shield and the defense that we have to fight against that drift is not some mystery. It's the word of God. This is what we need to give ourselves to as individuals, as families, and as a church. Someone asks you, what kind of church do you go to? You say, we're a church that teaches, believes, lives out the Bible. That's what we are. This is what our kids need. This is what our world needs, to hear the word of God, again, not in a sentimental way, but for what it really is. They need to hear the message of the eternal kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. 500 years after Ezra, the apostle Paul was speaking to a group of elders from Ephesus, and he told them false teachers, wolves were going to rise up, not in the next generation. He says, they'll rise up among you in the same generation. But Paul said, my conscience is clear. His reassurance was, I've taught you the word of God. He says, I did not shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel and then he says this to the elders, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. They protect themselves and they protect the church when they dedicate themselves to the word of God. And then when Paul comes to the end of his life, we find he's still giving the same message. You can turn to 2 Timothy 3 if you like. We'll just close with this. 2 Timothy is his last letter written to Timothy, his spiritual son. Paul knows death is near. And in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Think of our generation even today. People will be lovers of self Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul knew the threat of sin in every generation. He knew things were going to get worse. In verse 13 of the same chapter, he says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So how do you prepare for that? How do you protect yourself and your family and your church from things going from bad to worse? Verse 14, That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's message is the same message as Ezra. Give yourself, devote yourself to the Word of God. Give your life to know it and to do it and to teach it. Be diligent with the Word of God and be dependent on the work of God on your behalf. We do that, and the true king of kings will bless us. His hand will be upon us. Father, we're grateful for a reminder of this morning. We're grateful for these examples that we need of leaders who are empowered by you, blessed by you, and we're grateful for this chance to to peel back the curtain and see what it is that provided that blessing, what it is that, that fueled him and motivated him We pray you would give us that same diligence. We're so easily lazy and distracted. There are crafts we need to be skilled in for work and we give ourselves to those things. But there are so many things we know so much about and might even be skilled in that are simply a product of us being conformed to the world rather than us being conformed by your word. Forgive us for laziness Forgive us for our distraction. Give us this true diligence, not in a pharisaical way, but not in a sentimental way only. Help us be known as people of the book and keep us from arrogance. May we continually be dependent on your kindness and your blessing toward us. We pray that the types of reforms and changes that we've seen in Ezra and all throughout Christian history would have fruit in our own lives, in our families, and in our churches because your powerful word is working in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.